0: Hi, everybody, it's Libby Kelly, welcome back to the next wonder podcast. I am so excited to bring you this conversation with Dr. Nell Johnson, who is an OBGYN and we are talking menopause. And I just have to start by saying Nell and I are first cousins and really we have grown up more like sisters and I am humbled and honored, honestly, to claim her as a family member. Nell is one of the smartest people I know, and at the same time is one of the most humble and understated people that you will ever meet. Nell uh, grew up in Winston-Salem, and she spent 12 years at UNC Chapel Hill. She completed her undergrad studies there as a Moorhead Scholar, then med school as a Loyalty Fund Scholar, and then finally residency. She served as Administrative Chief Resident. She joined Lynn Turst in Winston-Salem in 2012, and in 2021, she won the Triad Moms on Main Choice Awards for favorite OBGYN, which is not at all surprising. Nell provides an incredible amount of, of wonderful, accessible information here. And let's get started. Okay, Nell, I am so excited to have you on, on this podcast. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Libby. <laughs>
0: I am going to dive right in and say that, you know, this is a topic that I have really had my head deep in the sand on for many years. I mean, to the point that I I really until now didn't want to even think about it or think about what was to come or talk about it or utter the word menopause like Voldemort and Harry Potter or something. But, you know, thanks to what I, I think is really has been an incredible effort on the part of many women, most of whom are not even in medicine at all, like um, you know, celebrities, Naomi Watts, Gwyneth Paltrow, Michelle Obama, Angelina Jolie, Oprah Winfrey. It's just not that these women have all the answers, but they and many other mainstream media sources have really started the conversation, which is amazing because knowledge is power. And I just am curious to know, um, in your practice, is this the topic of menopause? Is this something that patients seem to be asking about more than they had been uh, just a few years ago? I love
1: being here, Libby, and I, yes and no, Uh, and I think that yes is, I find a lot of patients when they start having symptoms or probably even more so when they're having really bad symptoms of menopause and symptoms that they feel desperate to treat, that they start asking about it. Okay. And it's not so much the patients who are, who are yet to have symptoms or maybe are having mild symptoms that start asking about it. And, and I was kind of allowing those women to wait And I think it's okay to wait to treat until symptoms are bothering you enough, but I think that at least knowing your options and knowing what may be coming is important. And so I don't get the questions as much from that group of women who are not yet having symptoms. And I find myself, before you started this conversation, probably not bringing it up as often as I, as even in the past month I have been doing, so, or since reading Menopause Manifesto and realizing a lot of women probably want to talk about it, even if they don't know they want to talk about it yet.
0: Interesting, interesting, and that is a that is a book that we have both talked about and that you have recommended, and that's Dr. Jen Gunter, and I'll put a a link to that. And that's just a great, I thought, great review. And for you, so you sounds like you and have enjoyed that book as well. I loved that book, and I I will admit that one of the things I
1: loved about it was it's confirmation of what I already thought. Uh, And yet, at the same time, some of the things that we practice in medicine, I think, are very um, well-taught. And, you know, you do a thousand C-sections, and so you know how to do a C-section. But when it comes to menopause treatment, there's so much variety out there, and there's so many opinions out there That in some ways it feels more like an apprenticeship rather than something you learn in residency, and so um, interesting having for a decade I've been in private practice, and I think the um, that apprenticeship, Dr. Jen Gunter's book, kind of was affirmative in how helpful that apprenticeship has been, and I really liked Mm. her being very uh, locked into what's called evidence based medicine. You know, medicine that. Um, we have a lot of data for and a lot of safety information for and a lot of efficacy inform- information for. And so I'm biased in that way because I really like that kind of medicine. And I think it's the best option for patients. Um, but I felt like her information was very much something I could pass along to a patient and say, I think you should read this book and feel very comfortable with the information that they will get from the book. Um, not that I'm not happy to talk to patients about it, but if you're given 15, 20 minutes with someone to have a conversation, you can't recap what she writes in that book that I think is very, very sound information and very helpful for women who are about to go through menopause or going through menopause or have been through menopause.
0: Okay. Yes. Uh, Great. Uh, Great, great, great summary and review of that book. And it really is a, it's very readable and that you can pick up a chapter and read about just vaginal estrogen, if you want to, and you don't have to read, you know, 300 pages or whatnot also. Um, well, just to start out, would you review with us natural, what is natural menopause?
1: Yes. So um, I think there's confusion about what natural menopause is, and yet it is very much um, something that can be well-defined. And it's when periods stop um, due to the ovaries um, stopping ovulation and, and hormonal production, or at least reducing it significantly. And um, so it's defined as around the natural age, which in the United States is about age 51, and it, full year without a menstrual cycle and all the years beyond. That's menopause. So it does have a very defined period of time in our lives that confusion lays in all the symptoms that lead up to not having a period anymore, and all the symptoms that follow not having a period anymore.
0: And you you mentioned um, the hormones involved. Would you just do a quick review of the hormones involved?
1: So I think women know that estrogen is involved, and, and they know that estrogen levels decline significantly um, to nearly undetectable levels after menopause there's a lot of fluctuation of those levels of estrogen throughout our lives in our, in our, you know, normal uh, menstrual cycle years in our twenties and thirties, there's fluctuation throughout the month, but there's just an erratic um, fluctuation in the years that lead up to ha- not having a period anymore. And that's usually the most symptomatic period of time. And that estrogen is produced by the ovaries, uh, by the follicles that are releasing eggs each month. And so in you stop releasing eggs. You run out of eggs. We're born with all the eggs we'll ever have. You stop producing estrogen. is another hormone. It plays a role, but not quite as much in the symptoms that come on with menopause. It still has an important role, though, in thinking about uh, when we treat menopausal symptoms. And it also, similarly to estrogen, is produced every month and fluctuates in our normal menstrual cycles every month and then has uh, quite a bit of fluctuation in the years leading up to menopause. And then I think a lot of women think about testosterone as being a, an important hormone. It is an important hormone, but it really doesn't have as much fluctuation as the estrogen and progesterone levels do. It's mostly produced by the adrenal gland. So its its production slowly declines over the period of our lives, but it's not a drastic decline with menopause. So if you're having a symptom related to testosterone dropping with menopause, it's it, it's coincidental to the menopause. It's just the natural aging process. Um, And whether or not there are a bunch of symptoms that come with the decline of testosterone for women is debatable. Um, But, Mm -hmm. but um, those are kind of the three main players uh, that I think easily summarize, you know, the, the hormone production before and during and after menopause. And then
0: in terms of the symptoms um, I know you have classified them and, and, and others have, Classic symptoms and then non-classic symptoms. And then I'd love you as you're talking about those to, to, to talk about what of which of these are the ones that really bring your patients into your office.
1: So classic symptoms, I think of and and should be thought of as the ones that are inevitably associated with the changes that happen in the menopausal year. So we can tie them to the hormonal changes that happen with menopause. And, and there's very little doubt about the role that hormones play in these symptoms. So the one that defines menopause is the changes in bleeding and changes in the menstrual menstrual cycle. So, you know, you're having periods once a month, like clockwork, if things are going well in your twenties and thirties and maybe forties, and then As hormones start to change, as you start ovulating potentially less often, and as you're getting closer to menopause, because it's not like a light switch, it's not like symptoms, you know, go from being non-existent to being existent, or you go from having monthly periods to never having one again. Um, As periods start to become more erratic, bleeding changes happen, right? So you may have bleeding less often, but you also may have bleeding that's heavier or uh, that pain, pain associated with your cycle more than you ever have. Um, you may have periods that are surprisingly closer together. Um, and so bleeding changes are kind of the hallmark of menopause. And then of course the cessation of bleeding is, is menopause. Um, and when it goes on for a year or more, another classic symptom uh, is in medicine called vasomotor symptoms. And the, those are the hot flashes and night sweats. Can other things cause those? Yes. But the reason it's considered a classic is because if those are happening as your periods are starting to change and you're in your late forties, early fifties, then it's certainly influenced, if not entirely influenced by the changing estrogen production.
0: And, and that's typically like the crap. Is that is that what, what's happening is really the crash of, of those hormones the fall, or is that actually more of a up and down hormones happening? Well, so great question. So estrogen very much
1: influences the brain and your brain is kind of the center of your temperature regulation. And so, um, it, it is more of the fluctuation and the crash of those hormones that, that confuses your brain as to, are you hot or cold? So even when you are a normal temperature sitting at your desk at work Not ready to start sweating, not ready to flush in your face. You suddenly flush in your face because your brain just doesn't understand that you're not hot, and so it sends a bunch of blood to your face and your chest and your back, and you break out into a sweat. And you're in an important meeting, or you're walking down the aisle at a wedding, or somewhere where you really can't afford to start sweating and and be all sticky and gross. And you have a hot flash, and then all of a sudden your brain kind of. Clicks back in, and so rather than that sweat being productive and cooling you off, all of a sudden your brain's like, "Oh wait, actually, you're you were already cold, or actually you were a normal temperature," and so you kind of go into this chilled state soon after the hot flash. And the reason it's more the hormonal shift and crash is because they do get better. So naturally, hot flashes will get better. So it's prepubescent girls, you know, don't have hot flashes because it's not a lack of hormone production. Mm. 80 year old women typically don't have hot flashes. There are some who do, um, but they go away as the years pass in menopause because you're no longer, your brain's no longer confused. You're just consistently not making estrogen as opposed to the fluctuation that you you have in your late forties, early fifties on average. And then the other classic symptom of menopause is going to be your vulvar and vaginal symptoms. And these are almost inevitable for women. Um, It's just whether or not they bother women. So I guess symptom, it could be either like a finding on an exam, you know, in in the office or a symptom that a patient actually complains about. But these are the dryness and the irritation, um, you know, decreased lubrication and the increased risk of urinary tract infections. I think a lot of people don't tie those together. So this is called genitourinary syndrome of menopause. What a mouthful. It's a terrible name. And yet it defines Mm -hmm. that it's not just about sex. You don't have to be having sex for this to be an issue. You don't have to be, um, you know, experiencing vaginal symptoms only. It's about the urinary system. It's about the vaginal tissue. And, And unfortunately, these are typically progressive So unlike the hot flashes where the hormonal fluctuation ends and hot flashes most typically get better, the vaginal symptoms are about the absence of hormones. And the longer that persists, the more likely a woman is to have symptoms. So all three of these, you ask the question about what brings patients to the office or what may have them concerned or hurting or complaining about a certain issue, All three of these do. I would say the bleeding pattern changes. I see so many women in their 40s who have big concerns about this because that's when those are going to be the most bothersome, uh, typically. I would Mm -hmm. say the hot flashes, again, if we're talking about a woman who's going to go through menopause at an average age, I see that most often in the late 40s, early 50s. And then the vaginal and vulvar symptoms kind of in the mid 50s and beyond, Um, I think that women, when they're having bleeding changes and, and bothersome bleeding changes, periods are heavier, crampier, um, totally unpredictable. So maybe they're starting to skip periods, but then all of a sudden they have, you know, the floodgates open and they're at a kid's graduation or a funeral or something where they just had no idea that women are likely to come in and talk about those and get those evaluated and treated, Um, Hot flashes, I think same thing. Women are going to talk about those. I find, I don't know if it's a generational difference or um, or just a, what women are comfortable talking about, but I find right now that a lot of women in their late 50s, but particularly like 60s or 70s, need the conversation started for them about the vaginal symptoms, um, you know, Most of the time on an exam, you know, when you're doing a pap smear or something like that, um, you're looking at the vaginal tissue and you think, gosh, that looks like it would be uncomfortable. And so many women don't mention it. And then you sit down and you say, are you having any, you know, vaginal symptoms, irritation, dryness, bleeding, pain? And they say, Oh yeah, I am. I, um, and, and they're just, they weren't comfortable talking about it. So I would say those are the women who they do have symptoms, but they're less likely to bring it up. And, and there's such good treatment for it. I would encourage women to feel comfortable bringing it up because that's why the gynecologist exists <laughs> is, is to have those, those, you know, conversations that would be awkward in the grocery store. They're not awkward at the gynecologist.
0: <laughs> and you know that it, it's that's interesting to hear you say it like that. I I I, w- I will tell you, and as a physician, I'm embarrassed that I'm certainly not an OB, but I should I should know better. Right, is how I feel about all of the stuff that I've learned through you and also um, my other reading on the topic is that I I really was under the impression that vaginal dryness just meant like, well, why don't you just grab a bottle of lube, like like lube is awesome. Just use lube for intercourse. And I I really didn't realize that, that, that actually wasn't just talking about vaginal dryness, like with sex, that it's actually the tissue changes and that treatment is needed, not just about, you know, like your sex life.
1: It is. And, And I think the other thing is that the vaginal tissue, you know, it's, it's not just dry. But it it the caliber of the vagina gets reduced. Um, we when we met with the group of women recently, I brought vaginal dilators just to show folks. And I felt like, and even I look at the smallest of vaginal dilators, and you think, no way, that dilator would have any you know begin to fill the vagina, and 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 maybe even be too big for a vaginal caliber of a woman and it can be, which is crazy, you know? And so, and so I think the,
0: I mean, they were like the size of a pinky, wouldn't you yeah, say? Maybe. Like, it's like a pinky maybe. finger, maybe like a, a pinky candy finger. cane.
1: Yeah. Like a, <gasps> yeah. I mean, anyway, are we talking about these things? Is this?
0: Absolutely. <laughs> That's what this is for.
1: <laughs> um, and I think it's, I think, yes, those women I find need a, the conversation started. Whereas folks struggling with hot flashes or bleeding are likely going to show up and talk about it.
0: Well, yeah, certainly a generational uh, thing for comfort level of talking about these topics, which really just makes me so proud to see and hear and read about the Gen X generation, you know, the birth year 1965 to the, you know, uh, eight, 1980 or so of that that group of women that is so uh, verbal about it and really embracing aging and uh, menopause, um, like I said earlier, I love the knowledge is power. Okay, I'm going to move on to um, this next um, this next topic that I just think uh, deserves uh, an introduction, and you did a great job of this when we got together. And that is the discussion um, around um, the what happened with the women's health initiative in the 1990s. And I'll just go ahead and like give the quick intro yeah. to say that um, essentially, and we all know, like the topic of hormones is, 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 it's wildly controversial, and we have this study to thank. And so basically, the Women's Health Initiative was a series of clinical studies that was initiated by the the National Institutes of Health in, in the early 90s, and to address essentially major health issues causing Morbidity, and mortality in postmenopausal women. So there were ongoing clinical studies looking at, you know, specifically for p- people that are non-medical. They're just looking at what is causing illness and the death in postmenopausal women. And then I'll turn it over to you in terms of kind of what happened um, with that study and the ensuing years.
1: And. Yes. I want to talk about it. I wasn't practicing medicine then. Um, and I can't quite imagine what it would have been like to practice medicine then because, um, estrogen was kind of the wonder drug up until that study. And, you know, it was the most, um, common prescription in the United States, uh, filled. It was 25% of American women were taking hormones and it made sense that they were because of the symptoms we've just talked about, right? Bleeding issues can be addressed with hormones. hot flashes, the, the standard of care is hormones. And vaginal symptoms can be addressed with hormones, whether it's hormones by mouth, systemic hormones, or whether it's, you know, specifically applied to the vagina. And so you had women filling their estrogen prescriptions and and going to the doctor and, and being excited that there was kind of a, a safe, perfect medicine to treat their symptoms. So they were super popular in the 1980s and 90s. And then um, the women's health initiative happened and I, I actually found dr gunner's discussion of it to be really interesting because she was practicing medicine at the time that it happened and it sounded like my dad was an OBGYN your uncle um you know and and, and <laughs> i i never heard about this from him necessarily but i'd mentioned this as well i'd remember hearing from my mom who was briefly on hormone therapy and got really mad at him for it's bringing him all these hormone samples and acting like it was a wonder drug. Because when the news of the Women's Health Initiative hit, women were mad and patients were mad and people were scared. And so um, the Women's Health Initiative really briefly swung hormones, or maybe not so briefly, from being all good to all bad. And it enrolled 64,000 women. So a really big medical trial that can give you lots of really helpful information. The more patients you have, the better. Um, And the problem was the age range for those women was age 50 to age 79. That's a really big range. I think none of us consider a 50-year-old to have the same health risks as a 79-year-old. And they also... um, were taking a specific kind of estrogen an oral estrogen so we didn't really talk too much about that when we we're talking about you know what can be helpful for menopausal symptoms but there's oral estrogen and then there's also estrogen applied you know by the skin that is absorbed and acts like oral estrogen but maybe carries less risk so these were a large age ra- a large um, excuse me age range of women with only one type or one avenue of hormone being prescribed and that was an oral medication And so five years into the study and three years earlier than they had planned to stop it, the study was halted prematurely in 2002. And the reason was for an increased risk of breast cancer and no evidence of what they had really hoped to show, which was reducing the risk of heart disease. And in fact, in the initial study, in the initial analysis of the data, they showed an increased risk for breast cancer, which was already known increased risk of heart disease, which was hoped to have been not the case before the study, stroke, and then blood clot or, you know, a blood clot that could travel to the lungs of pulmonary embolus. It did show in that initial data that there was fewer cases of uh, hip fractures, which are really important to think about, and fewer cases of colon cancer. So it, they had some benefit, but five years into the study, they had too much risk to just keep going on with the study. And I think um it, there's a big swing, you know, you can go look at the magazine covers at the time, you can um hear women quoted and talking about the time about how scared they suddenly were of the hormones they had been on. And I don't take the risk of breast cancer lightly by any means. I think heart disease is a terrible thing. Um and and it, you know, is is a big risk to women. But um I think that it shouldn't have been, and everyone agrees with this, shouldn't have been extrapolated so quickly to all women, right? So really when you then broke that data down, women in their fifties did not have these same increased risks um, of increased risk for heart disease, stroke, blood clot. And in fact, their risk was potentially reduced. Now was a woman in her sixties or seventies likely to be at an increased risk for these when on hormones. Yeah. And so, I counsel patients very differently when they come with symptoms that may be adequately treated with with um, hormones and they're 55 years old. I counsel that patient very differently than if they come in with symptoms and they're 65 years old. And so I think taking into account age, um, taking into account again, how the hormones were delivered. So transdermal estrogen, estrogen that's applied by the skin and has the same positive effect as estrogen taken by mouth, much lower risk for stroke, heart attack, blood clot. And so when you look at the absolute risks, um, you know, the Women's Health Initiative just was, was scary initially because it was picked up so quickly by the media and in the media, they don't typically talk about absolute numbers and they didn't really have all the data breaking down the age groups. Um, so I think that's, that's where we've had somewhat of a swing back. I've only been, like I said, in private practice for 10 years, and I don't think it feels nearly like the eighties and nineties are described. So the swing back has not happened entirely. And that's probably a good thing, right? Cause all medicines have risks but i think sure. we're we're moving in the direction of folks being more comfortable treating their symptoms maybe not treating their symptoms for the rest of their lives but treating their symptoms for the the time in which they're happening and then you know kind of coming off of those medications as as they're ready to
0: now this is such a great explanation it it is so frustrating to think that the baby was really thrown out with the bathwater here initially as you have so nicely outlined for us, and that women in their early 50s in the throes of perimenopausal symptoms were lumped into women in their late 70s, and that that misinterpretation led to consequences that have lasted, here we are, more than 20 years later. So, I mean, really fascinating and also quite sad. Would you like to go forward with talking about menopause Hormone Therapy? Sure,
1: absolutely. Two, the two main components of menopause hormone therapy um, are going to be estrogen and progesterone. Estrogen is the one that really can help with those classic symptoms of menopause, mostly the hot flashes and the vaginal symptoms of dryness and irritation. Progesterone is important, uh, but it's really only important for the woman who still has a uterus. So if someone, a woman has had a hysterectomy then she doesn't really benefit or need progesterone therapy as part of her hormone therapy, what progesterone does. in you know, the sixties women were taking estrogen alone and coming in and going, wow, I'm bleeding so much. And it turned out that they weren't just bleeding, but there was an increased risk of having a, a cancer in the lining of the uterus. That sounds really scary, but now progesterone is known to completely take away that risk. So as long as a woman has a uterus, she should be, if taking hormones, on both estrogen and progesterone. Those are the two main things. So if a woman doesn't have her uterus, she can be on just estrogen. The best things that hormones are going to treat are going to be hot flashes, night sweats. And again, those can be bothersome enough to take on those low risks of hormone therapy in the right woman, right? Um, In the right woman at the right age. At the right age. to to treat those hot flashes and night sweats. And what we talked about earlier is those hot flashes and night sweats do subside with time. So so slowly she can come off those hormones and expect that she wasn't feeling at the age of, let's say, 58, like she was at the age of 51. Um, just, Just example ages. Estrogen also is a fantastic medication for vaginal symptoms. And What you don't, fortunately, you don't need to take on the risks of systemic estrogen and you can use just vaginal estrogen. So vaginal creams, vaginal inserts, um, some, there's one oral medication as well that can be taken that targets just the vaginal estrogen receptors. And so a woman can take a medication or use a, a topical medication to get the benefit of estrogen for the vagina and not need to take on the systemic risks, even though they're low but not need to take on the systemic risks. And the reason that's so important is because as I mentioned before, the vaginal symptoms are only progressive. So it's important for a woman in her sixties or her seventies or her eighties to have some form of relief for any vaginal symptoms she may be having, but she may not be a good candidate for systemic hormones like estrogen taken by mouth or estrogen applied to the arm or by a patch or whatnot. And so in those women, it's really important to have a, a, a safe alternative and vaginal estrogen is a great medication. I, I will be using it. I'll just start using it preventatively in the next few years. I don't know. Uh, but it's a great, it's a great medication.
0: I had a friend who's um, I mean, grandmother is like in the hospital, like in her late eighties and they're on her deathbed. And she said she was like rubbing the vaginal estrogen, like between her wrists. Uh. <laughs> she, just, <laughs> she said that she had like, it had kept her, her and her vagina young for her, her whole life. I was like, that is awesome. It's important.
1: Um, it's so necessary. Uh, it's so necessary. And I do think, uh, I always like to pause and say, it's also important I, to, I, I do take into account the women who can't use estrogen, right? So there are good alternatives. So menopause hormone therapy um, has alternatives for women who cannot use hormones and most women can use vaginal estrogen. Um, even women who have had like an estrogen sensitive cancer, like a breast cancer, some of their oncologists after a number of years will be okay with them using estrogen vaginally. Now, whether the patient is okay with using it is always, you know, that's, that's something that may make her nervous, but fortunately there are alternatives. So what you mentioned before is like, is lubrication enough? There are like they're vaginal moisturizers that aren't just about application with intercourse, but they can be used, you know, twice a day to help with vaginal moisture. There's also um, non-hormonal alternatives for hot flashes. So there's actually medications that are in the antidepressant family, like uh, Paxil is the main one. It's it's approved for hot flashes. It's called Brisdell for hot flashes, but any of those horm- uh, those SSRIs, like um. Prozac or Lexapro or Selexa or whatever typically have some improvement on on hot flash number and severity, and so there are alternatives for women who don't feel like they are safe to take hormones or whose doctors don't feel like they're safe to take hormones too. So I just I, I take I do take those women to account, of course,
0: because unfortunately they number more than any of us would like. Yes. Um, do you want to name anything else in terms of non hormonal treatment? and or alternative medicines? Good question. Um, One more thing that
1: hormones are good for, and before I um, get off of that, is bleeding patterns in your 40s and your early 50s. So a lot of women may not need birth control in their 40s. Maybe Maybe their husband has had a vasectomy, or maybe they've had a tubal ligation, or maybe they just aren't needing birth control. But birth control pills or um, other types of birth control methods like uh, IUDs that release a small amount of progesterone. So I would consider that maybe not menopause hormone therapy, but hormone therapy targeting the menopausal symptoms, perimenopausal symptoms that are leading up to menopause um, can be really helpful for the the bleeding uh, issues. So, Yes. Non-hormonal options. um, And really these can be used in conjunction with hormones too. So either for a woman who can't take hormones or in addition to hormones, um, because there's no medication that's going to be perfect. And there's always going to be a medication that, you know, eventually maybe we recommend trying to get off of. Um, So cognitive behavioral therapy has good data. So that is essentially therapy that can help women kind of reframe. I'm not a therapist, so I'm probably gonna get this wrong, but kind of reframe their uh, their negative thoughts about hot flashes. And this can be used for so many things. It can be used for uh, sleep disorders, insomnia, whether it's related to menopause or not. I mean, cognitive behavioral therapy in the hands of the right person, the right professional can be really helpful and it's proven to be helpful. Um, I already mentioned the mood medications and it's always important I tell patients, I'm not saying you're crazy. Yeah because I think that's tricky is when they come in, they're like, I am having have these terrible hot flashes. And I suggest an antidepressant. Um, I, I like to make sure beforehand they know, I don't think they're depressed or crazy or anxious, but that there's actual data for hot flashes. Um, gabapentin or Neurontin is more often used for kind of a host of symptoms. It does have a little bit of data for hot flashes. I prescribe it not very often I'll be very honest um, because I think the the mood medications if you're looking for an alternative have uh, more of a more of a benefit than the neurotin they more more evidence for them um, they actually have FDA approval for it paxil specifically and get does not um, so um, and then dr. Gunner mentions clonidine which I really don't prescribe again because there's too many side effects and there's other better alternatives Um which is actually like a blood pressure medication, Uh, but I I don't end up finding that that is something that I feel is uh, uh, to be as useful as the other medicines that have good data behind them.
0: And one one more thing, one more thing to go on when you said the, you know, you mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy, and this is one thing that I thought was interesting from um, the Menopause Manifesto book was the evidence, and this is, it's along the lines of cognitive behavioral therapy, the evidence that if you know what to expect and you know what is normal and know what is to come, you actually register the symptoms as being less less severe, which I think is just really, I mean, true for kind of everything in life, I think. But interesting to see that really spelled out uh, clearly.
1: Well, I totally agree. And you probably you see this, you talk to patients about this too, you know, when you're thinking about a medication, when patients know they have options... They sometimes want treatment less. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, and I, and I'm not suggesting they should want treatment less or that I'm not willing to treat their symptoms, but a lot of conversations about menopausal symptoms will lead into discussing all the options. And then a patient saying, okay, well, I'll let you know. Mm -hmm. And if, I mean, a number of them will, you know, I'm sure they want to go home and kind of do their own reading and thought and, take their time to make a decision. But a number of them will reach back out and say, okay, yeah, will you send in that estrogen patch for me? Or will you send in some estrogen cream for me? But a fair number just kind of wanted to know, like you said, be educated on what was going on, know whether it was going to get better or not on its own naturally, and then know their options. And suddenly when you feel like you have options, sometimes the symptoms, you know, you know, there's always something there you could reach out and treat if you needed to, but that, that that you're not, you know, missing out on treatment. The only downside I'll say is if you wait on the vaginal symptoms, being that they're progressive, there's a lot more catch-up time for you. Oh, this. really? That's not the same way with hot flashes or bleeding issues. You know, once you start treatment, you're going to usually get the response pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Whereas the vaginal symptoms, I'll often tell patients, like, fine to wait, fine to think about it, but, you know, if you're getting any worse or if you were just scared of this medication, I can give you any more information about it to make you less scared of it. I would strongly consider it because those are, those symptoms can be so progressive. Oh, that's
0: that's really, that's really interesting to know that. Um, so yes, one with a one just with the, the anxiety and fear and of the uncertainty and no options is, is so scary. And so that interesting just to educate Like, I love that you are educating your patients on this and to think that so many Gen X women are educating themselves. And then um, that second point there of yours is just, that's really interesting. When in doubt, start the vaginal estrogen if you're... Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and along that, I I've, this is something I've wanted to ask, and this is this is a, a a question I've had both from patients myself and myself, to be very honest here, is that this issue with having a morena. So an IUD, as you said, that you know has both has um hormone impregnated where bleeding is very limited and periods for can be spotting um, for some women and other women have no bleeding at all. And so would you just comment on that group? And I think that's always a question is how does that woman know if they're anywhere near menopause um, with a Mirena in? Great question. And this is,
1: I totally, I said before, I totally feel that Dr. Gunnar's information in her book is very accurate very evidence-based. And I totally agree with her. I'm starting to, I'm answering your question, but I'm going in a backwards pattern here. But the one thing that I find myself doing, maybe more often than I should, but I don't find it causing harm, is checking some hormone levels. And it's for this reason. So um, I think we're all curious about where are we in our in our natural cycle? And I too have a marina. Uh, they're very popular. So many women have a marina, and they work so well for so many things. So right, they're birth control, they're menstrual cycle regulation, a forgettable kind where you don't have to take something every day. There's nothing you have to do when you're having sex. It's just it's birth control. It's, it's just awesome. Excellent method of everything. I love my Marina. I know not everyone loves Marina's. I know some women have had them and had complications, but for the most part, patients love them. And then you get to this time in our lives where a lot of women in their forties have them, right? Because they made a decision after their last baby to get one, or they wanted a long acting method. And they're wondering at the age of 48, am I menopause yet? Right. Cause remember 51 is only average Right. or at the age of 51, am I in menopause yet? Maybe I'm going to go through menopause later. And I think Dr. Gunner makes a good point that we check hormones too often because does it matter exactly when you go through menopause? No. What matters more are the symptoms. So um, those classic symptoms, obviously if you have a Mirena and you barely have bleeding, then you're not having the classic symptom of bleeding irregularities and bothersome periods if you're having hot flashes in your mid, late 40s, early 50s, it is, it is totally reasonable to attribute those to the hormonal changes in, in life at that point. I mean, with some evaluation, but it's totally reasonable to attribute those to the hormonal changes and treat those regardless of whether naturally you would be a full year into having no period. Cause most of the symptoms of menopause are going to be in those perimenopausal years. The ones in your, that your bleeding's wacky and you're waiting for the bleeding to stop forever. That's also when the hot flashes are going to potentially be the worst. and that's also when um, maybe some of the mood changes or the other non-classic symptoms are going to be at their, at their worst. So it doesn't require hormones being checked to, to, Treat symptoms of menopause. Um, the one thing I will say is, if a woman is goes through early menopause, what it changes in my mind for her is does she need supplemental hormones to kind of carry her to an average age of menopause for her heart health and her bone health and her overall well being? Because if a woman goes through menopause at the age of forty, we want to know about it so that we can supplement her with hormones. And, and make sure that her health is as good as it can be to the average age of menopause. And and so that's where I'll check hormones is if there's like, are you 40 and you're having these hot flashes and that's a little on the early side for it. So I'll check hormones if a woman has an IUD. And so we're kind of trying to figure that out. Um, or at the age of 50, let's say a woman really wants to get her IUD out, but we're kind of wondering, is she close enough to menopause to do that? Is she going to have that very, very, very rare natural pregnancy at the age of 50? So maybe we check hormones. So I do check them a little more often than Dr. Gunnar would suggest, but I'm guessing most OBGYNs do. Yes, of course. (laughs) I'm thinking they do. Yes, of course. Um, Because the other part is there's no harm in checking them. I mean, of course I wouldn't do anything in medicine if there was a harm to doing it, but I think that I think that answering some of those questions for for women and for myself are helpful in knowing how long do you need that IUD if you want to get it out now? Is that reasonable? Um, do you need other supplemental hormones, not just for symptoms, but for your overall health if you're going through menopause at a little bit of an earlier than average age?
0: Um, yes. Does that answer the very question? very much so. Thank you so much.
1: Um, I do think it's interesting. Sorry to... Sorry to um, Say one more thing. So, uh, Marina is going to take away your period for the most part, or make it very light. Um, Birth control pills can give you an artificial period. So, if you're on birth control pills and you are in menopause, you may not know it because you may be getting that artificial period each month. So, for those women, um, it is acceptable just to just to continue birth control till the like. Early to mid 50s, and then just stop it because the risk of natural pregnancy beyond that point is just so incredibly low.
0: Do, does a morena cause any sort of artificial spotting? That's no. No.
1: Um a morena releasing just a small amount of progesterone is gonna keep the lining of the uterus thin. And it has no estrogen in it. So it's the estrogen-progesterone combination that's going to give you a, an artificial period. So you have estrogen that kind of thickens the lining of the uterus, either naturally because your ovaries are doing that or because of a birth control pill. Got it. And then the estrogen part in that last week of the pill stops. And it's the withdrawal from the estrogen-progesterone combination that makes you shed off Either your period, right, and if you're 25 years old and not using anything and you have a period, that's what's happening. Or if you're on a birth control pill, that withdrawal from those artificial exogenous hormones are giving you that withdrawal bleed. Got it. So if you are- But the Marina won't because there's okay, no- there's got no it. Strategy. So
0: if you're having spotting, hypothetically, <laughs> just kidding, uh, just kidding, <laughs> randomly, then you are still having, quote unquote, a period. I mean, that's kind of your period, Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Interesting.
1: Yes. Okay. So no Libby, you're not yet in menopause. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you for the, the, the diagnosis. You make menopause so exciting <laughs> though. I guess I'll have to wait a little bit longer. <laughs> um, I would love for you to maybe touch on some alternative medicines.
1: This is actually one of the things I found to be super helpful in the menopause manifesto. Um, and the reason for it was, I think that when you go on Amazon or you go to the pharmacy, I've always been hesitant about all of the vitamins and supplemental medications there are out there for folks. But I think Dr. Gunner's research into it and her kind of diving a little deeper into the specifics was super helpful. Um, because I see patients all the time and I say, now, why are you taking this? And I'll I'll have a patient say, I, I don't know. And I'll say, well, what symptom prompted you to take it? And the patient says, oh, I don't know. Or my friend told me to take it. And then I'll say, well, what have you noticed differently? What has improved since you started taking it? And same thing, I don't know. And that's not a criticism. I've done it. I sure. mean, I've, I've done the exact same thing. I thought, well, what could I do to help with a certain symptom? So the answer, the short answer is... No, there aren't great alternatives to the medications that can be prescribed. And we have great alternative medications that have good data. So I usually don't have great alternative medication recommendations. Fortunately, there are some that have maybe some limited benefit and don't have harm. So soy isoflavins maybe can give you a little bit of hot flash uh, reduction and they really don't carry um, risk. I think people hear soy and they think estrogen. And the reason for that is the estrogen that's made synthetically in a lab is mostly made from sweet potatoes and soybeans. And so they think, well, if I eat enough soy, then I will be getting estrogen and it can't, your body can't make the estrogen that that we need or that we make naturally in our bodies—that's a totally different process. We can't make that out of yams or soy. Interesting, soybeans. different endocrine um,
0: molecule or whatever. Yeah,
1: they're different, but there's no harm in in you know isoflavones from from soy products. It's just a matter of are you wasting your money at Walgreens or Amazon and really not seeing benefit. Okay. So, yeah. but no harm to that. Um, and then I thought it was really interesting. That's the main one I'll say. Yeah, yeah no harm. You could give it a try. I thought um, there was really good information given in her book about um, just no proven benefit for acupuncture, for vitamins, um, for evening primrose oil. Because I do find a lot of patients marijuana. I find a lot of patients using things in the name of certain symptom and. If they're having benefit to, let's say, anxiety from their acupuncture,
0: there's no harm to
1: that acupuncture. But I, as a Western medical doctor, shouldn't recommend something as an alternative to medication for hot flashes and put someone at the expense of time and money to go do those things. And I know that it doesn't have any proven benefit. So anyway, I think she lays out kind of what doesn't have good benefit. Very well, wow.
0: yeah. Describe for us, um, and you did this the other evening, the sort of vaginal care type things that we all should be should be doing. Not
1: much. <laughs> no, seriously. So I think that um, I think the key is we. There's a lot of stuff that we do um, that you know maybe becomes important not to do after menopause or with menopause. So. Um, The skin, one of the things that happens with the vaginal delivery of estrogen or yes, that natural delivery of estrogen to the vagina is it thickens the skin. It makes it, um, you know, more resistant to bacteria. There's more hair down there before menopause. Um, So there's lots of things that are kind of protective uh, and and prevent irritation and prevent, you know, easy, easy, um, you know cuts or bleeding, that sounds terrible. So, you know, shaving or plucking or waxing, all these things that get done probably become important not to do after menopause. So I'm not saying that you have to avoid those, but if you're having symptoms of irritation and dryness and thinner skin because of the lack of estrogen, probably important not to do those things. Um, And think about alternative hair removal techniques. The good news is hair naturally declines after menopause so one of the positive <laughs> symptoms maybe down there is you maybe need less shaving but in general I'd avoid those those things because they can make symptoms of, of vaginal irritation worse
0: and you're um, okay with um, laser hair removal is that right okay. yeah okay. yeah
1: absolutely especially because it's usually short-lived um, now the only downside to laser hair removal is the not the only but it's it can be yeah. expensive. Right. Huh. I'm, I've really never seen it covered by insurance and it relies on a contrast between skin and hair color. So if you have, you know, if a woman has white hair down there and very white skin, she's not going to be a good laser hair removal candidate. But um, if there's a contrast in those, um, certainly maybe your your money is worth putting into that as opposed to doing any of these more abrasive uh, techniques for hair removal. Um, moisturizers and lubricants. So these are those options, both for women who can't use hormones, but also for women who do use hormone therapy um, in addition as a supplement to that. And so those, some of those can be used. The moisturizers are typically felt to be the ones that can be applied and kind of last you throughout the day. And then the lubricants, the ones that can be used with intercourse. Um, And my favorite is coconut oil. So there are several types of lubricants. Um, Some are condom compatible, some are not, some are... You know, you don't want to use coconut oil if you're allergic to coconuts, but um, it can be super helpful, and it's cheaper than all the things you're going to find in the in the pharmacy. You could just get it at the baking aisle grocery store. If you get like the solidified kind, it typically is going to be um, easier to apply than the oil based kind. And then, um, so like the white, your partner can use it. So like
0: the white, thicken, not the refined oil is. Right. I mean, you can use the oil. It just may be messier. Yeah. Yeah, The oil may be, the
1: oil may be messier. Um, The other thing you mentioned, what can you do? And I said, well, try not to do anything. So gentle soaps, not like scrubbing and wiping. And this is something that probably at all ages we should avoid doing. There is a normal, healthy amount of bacteria, you know, in, on our bodies in general, but in the vagina specifically. And so your goal is not to have a sterile vagina. Um, so if, if a woman after menopause is having itching or irritation, it's not because, or often it's not because she needs to like bathe more or scrub more, right? It's it's a, probably the opposite. If she's bathing and scrubbing a lot, then I would I would avoid that. Um, pad wearing can be irritating. So usually if a, you shouldn't need a pad if you're no longer having bleeding, right? From a menstrual perspective. But women often will wear a pad for, um, you know, either just some discharge yeah. or urinary incontinence. And using pads designed for urinary incontinence are going to be less irritating than menstrual pads. Um, one of my favorite non-hormonal options is, and you've heard me talk about it, is pelvic floor physical therapy. So I, one of my favorite things in general, I think that medicine um, is not complete without physical therapy. I think physical therapy is so helpful for head to toe symptoms. um, But the pelvic floor physical therapy, a lot of women don't know about, you know, they've been to a physical therapist for their knee or their back or their foot, you know, but they they've never heard of pelvic floor physical therapy. And that can be helpful for women suffering with pain with intercourse. It can be helpful um, for women who are uh, having just pelvic pain in general, urinary incontinence, um, issues with bowel movements. It can be just so helpful. Specifically for the symptoms of menopause, um, pelvic floor physical therapists are also going to be a great person to educate on vaginal dilator use. So going back to that progressive nature and having a harder time catching up if it's if it's that you don't get on treatment soon, for women whose you know the vaginal caliber has shrunk due to lack of estrogen uh, production naturally and then application artificially, um, dilators can be really helpful, and a pelvic floor physical therapist can be so so helpful in kind of that education process um, in in teaching women about how to use them, and then vaginal rejuvenation. This is also. It's not. It doesn't have as much data as the vaginal estrogen does, but for a woman who's hesitant to use hormones, who really needs to use something, um, vaginal rejuvenation, the one in our office, there are a couple different brand names, is Thermiva. And it's a device uh, that applies radio frequency. Um, and what it does is it's inserted vaginally. It usually takes a few treatments to see results. And that radio frequency increases blood flow to the vagina and promotes the things that a lack of estrogen took away. So collagen production, um, remodeling of tissues, lubrication. And so women have good success with this. It just doesn't have quite as much efficacy data and safety data as the tried and true methods. But I do hear from patients that they they think it's really helpful. It also typically is not covered by insurance. Um, but like laser hair removal is going to be your, like, you're going to get out of it. Um, a good deal for what you have to put into it. Three treatments, um, you know, is a lot less than your, a lifetime worth of a- vaginal estrogen. Yeah.
0: And that's like an in office procedure at an, at your OB.
1: Yeah. It's not uncomfortable. No anesthesia. Not every office has it. Um it's not like a it's not your run of the mill like ultrasound, you know, but but it but it's getting more and more common.
0: Oh, so helpful. Okay, recurrent UTIs in postmenopausal women. You have discussed that being an issue. Your thoughts there.
1: So estrogen, estrogen, estrogen. So vaginal estrogen Can help. One of the reasons that women have recurrent UTIs, they can have them at any age, but specifically, let's say in their 50s, they start having UTIs. Almost certainly, there's some relationship to lack of estrogen production. Mm. And so, if you can use vaginal estrogen, if you're willing to use vaginal estrogen, that's a great option. Um, Women also at any age, but again, in menopause, if they're having enough UTIs in a given six month period, can be put on daily antibiotics or antibiotics with intercourse. Mm. Um, and then there are a couple other medications that are like antibiotics that um, I see urologists using a little more often than, than I do, but basically antibiotics and estrogen um, not so it, it, options that are not well proven, but again, they'd have no harm. So they're kind of like the soy isoflavins for hot flashes would be cranberry supplements, um, probiotics, emptying your bladder after sex. Um, just, they don't have as much. That's, always so, that's so um,
0: surprising. That's, that crazy? It's so surprising I to think. And I, I assume showering after sex is also not proven. No.
1: Yeah. But it's, it's one of those similar to the soy isoflavones. I will, I, so I, so I won't, you know, promote these as being the cure for all. But do they have any harm? Right. Yeah. No. So, so I'll typically, you know, say, well, if you're seeing a benefit from emptying your bladder after sex, then of course yeah. do it. Right. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna promote it as being, well, here's your fix. But when something has no harm, I will certainly, you know, let someone continue to do it if they feel like it's helping. You know, and and um, do I do some of the non-proven benefits? Yes. Yeah. Right. Yes. I hear you.
0: I hear you. Okay. Libido is, you know, a more of like a one week conference than it is a quick, um, but I would love just your, just your, your thoughts on, on, on libido.
1: Oh, so um, this is
0: multifactorial,
1: right? So there is no quick fix for low libido. Um, Even the medication options out there are never a quick fix. I typically will um, not be jump on medications for libido because this is one of those non-classic symptoms of menopause. So unlike the things that are going to quickly respond to hormones or medication, potentially libido is not one of them and it's, could it be related to hormones? Yeah. But remember going back to what we talked about testosterone levels um, are just this gradual decline with age. They don't suddenly drop with menopause. Um, and yet libido in your 40s or 50s may be drastically reduced. And is it because of hormones or is it because of life? You know, is it because of growing kids, yeah. aging parents, job stressors, stressors at home? Um, I think that libido is one of those things that we have to have a bigger conversation about than medication options yes. only. Um I think one of the things that is really important to first define is, does it bother someone? So if a woman comes in and says to me, I have, I'm, I don't want sex as much as I used to. I used to think of that as a complaint. I used to think she was saying, I'm bothered by not wanting to have sex as much as I used to. And I've started saying, actually, instead, like, oh, OK, I understand what you're telling me. You don't want to have sex as much as you used to. Does that bother you? And about half the time she'll say, no, it doesn't bother me, but I was just wondering about it or no, my husband can't have sex. I was just wondering if it's concerning that I don't want to have sex as often as I used to, or it it is. so, So I don't think it bothers people as often as it actually happens. Um, And I think it's very specific to couples. And so I think defining what a healthy sex life looks like is not for me to define for a patient or not for a magazine to define for a patient, but for a couple to talk about and figure out what works for them. So um, first, that's my first question. So then the next question or the next follow-up is, of course, if she says, yes, it bothers me. Yes, it's a big issue in our relationship or in my marriage. Then you think about well, why. So if it's because of vaginal dryness or pain, who wants to have sex when you, if you're having pain with it, then that, that may be, that's probably the easiest way to fix wanting sex is to fix a physical symptom that's occurring with sex. So vaginal estrogen, pelvic floor physical therapy, big help with, with, um, libido, if they're related to that. um, If it's related to um, stressors or relationship difficulties, much sooner than jumping on medication is thinking about a sex therapist. Um, There's even a brick and mortar center in Greensboro called Awakenings. So I'll usually mention that to patients, not because I refer everyone there, but because I like them to know how common what they're experiencing is. Because if they have a building set up with therapists taking care of individuals and couples, then you know it's got to be... A common yeah. issue. Um, and um, then, you know, what can you do at home for those relationship things? So again, instead of making a referral to a sex therapist, I think often couples can kind of slowly figure this out. And I love Dr. Gunner said this, and it's so, it's so true, is putting time towards wanting sex. So we put time towards so many things in our daily lives, right? We put time towards um, our jobs and our families and our um, grocery runs and our exercise regimens. And yet we just want, we just want to have sex come very naturally and that it take 15 minutes and it was desired before we had it. And it was pleasurable when we had it and it was satisfactory after it was done. And you know, most things we spend more than 15 minutes on once per right. week. Um, yeah. And so I think, I think talking to your partner, um, changing it up, um, you know, fantasies, foreplays. Um, I think it's important to think that effort is going to be involved um, in changing things that have become less than desired. Um, and, and it may take time. And then, Medications are out there. Testosterone is sometimes used. I do use it. It has it has the risk of you know deepening your voice, uh, promoting hair growth, um, acne, uh, changes in cholesterol for the worse. Um, but in a woman who's you know cholesterol is being monitored and who swears that it's helping her, I'll give it a trial. Um, you know if 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 we're going to a medication. There's one FDA-approved medication that I'll sometimes use called Addy, and it's similar to Welbutrin, which a lot of folks have heard of for anxiety or depression, and it can bump libido. I personally have found patients not have a huge amount of success with it, and it comes with having to avoid alcohol. Um, It comes with- Okay, wait. um, Do people
0: have sex without alcohol?
1: Yeah, I know. (laughs) two hours before taking a dose and not again until the next day.
0: Wow. No, it's true. I mean, that's like, (laughs) yeah.
1: And and it may take like a month or two to work. And so I I don't end up prescribing it as often as I, as maybe, you know, others. Um, And then, well, butrin can have some help. So if, if I'll sometimes say, why not try medication if you have multiple symptoms that may positively respond to one medication. Right. Right. So I do love the medication Wellbutrin for certain symptoms, um, metabolisms for the better. So weight changes, um, can be, you can lose weight a little more easily with Wellbutrin, um, anxiety symptoms and libido. So if you are having all those things, then why not try one medication that may help everything? Um,
0: those then, are the big things.
1: Libido, yeah, it could be a whole it other could. podcast. And
0: then testosterone does come. It it does, I remember um, learning that it, that a voice deepening is actually a permanent change. So that's just something to think yeah. about. <laughs> that's not, that doesn't yeah. go away.
1: And I would only prescribe, so there's no FDA approved testosterone women. Okay. Um, a little, uh, I'll usually prescribe a transdermal um, through a compounding pharmacy, which is one of the few times I'll not a few times, but I don't use a compounding pharmacy as often as I, of course, use like a, a standard pharmacy. But testosterone is one of the ones I do send through a compounding pharmacy because there's no good equivalent for a woman like there is for, for a man at a at a regular pharmacy.
0: Oh, so helpful. Thank you. I'm gonna do a little outtake here from my conversation with Nell and just really highlight a few things from Dr. Gunder's. Menopause Manifesto book that I thought were really important. And I have read a lot about sex, and I think it's just such an important topic. And it's really been one that has fascinated me, and especially sex and long-term relationships. And so I'm going to highlight a few things from this book that they might, have, they might not be completely brand new to me, but the way she states them and puts it all together uh, was really, just a reassuring and kind of boldly telling you kind of what you have to do. That um, I really want to share. So, the first discussion that that I'm going to jump into is one on on desire and specifically, you know, desire in, in women. And um, here we go. Desire can mean actively wanting to engage in sexual activity or being receptive to engaging in physical activity meaning the lack of spontaneous desire is not a medical condition. The traditional model of sexual response starts with spontaneous desire, which leads to arousal and then orgasm. Like many things in life and in medicine, it was based primarily on the sexual responses of men. What we know now is this model doesn't apply to many women, and it also doesn't work for all men. This is a good place to add that the patriarchy hurts men as well as women, because men who don't follow the quote, always thinking about sex and always ready model are viewed as being lesser when they are just following the sexual script that works for them. I just thought that was, I think, in in, in the media and in life and in anything you watch on TV, it's just Everyone's supposed to have this spontaneous sexual desire um, and certainly women and certainly men want women to have that. And just interesting to think that those studies really were based on a man's sexual response and and not not a woman. Okay, the next uh, thing that I want to share is about maintaining desire, developing and maintaining desire. Okay, here we go. So how do people maintain desire? In one study, researchers surveyed people who still had desire in a long-term relationship and compared them with those who did not. Sexual satisfaction and passion were higher among people who had sex more often, had more orgasms, received more oral sex, tried a a variety of positions, worked on setting the mood, and who communicated about their sexual needs and desires. It's unlikely that different positions led to magical sex endorphins. Rather, many of these factors associated with maintaining desire seem to be related to having having sexually curious conversations and being willing to try different things to pleasure your partner. And then another paragraph on that, we spend a lot of effort doing a lot of things. The more effort we put into it, the better that outcome. Many people don't realize that good sex is like any other task the more effort you put in the more likely you see, will see rewards talking about sex what you like and don't like and trying new things is the oxygen that keeps a sex life going so i i um that that'll be the end of the outtake but just i think really important for us to to think about that how important investing in this aspect of our lives is and it, and it does take work and takes effort and it shouldn't necessarily just come easily and just spontaneously, spontaneously happen. Okay. Thanks. Back to Nell. For one of our final topics, if you want to cover mood changes and sleep disturbances and the perimenopausal brain fog that women describe, that'd be great.
1: Yes. So when I think about non-classic symptoms, it's important to put these into that realm. So you have libido being one of those as well. Um, And then mood changes are certainly a non-classic symptom. And the reason to think about that is just to think about how multifactorial they may be. So certainly there may be mood changes in the menopausal years that are related to hormonal changes, no doubt about it. And sometimes a good way to test that is if you treat with hormones for some other indication like hot flashes and mood symptoms get better. That's fantastic. Um, Likewise, there's that overlapping treatment that can be used for hot flashes and mood changes, like a classic mood medication like Prozac or Paxil. Um, But it's just so important to remember that it shouldn't all be blamed on hormonal changes. You know, men may be going through the same mood changes at a similar point in life Um, it could entirely be related to all the stressors and the things that can affect our mood and that's not to be forgotten. So if I I see a patient and we're talking about depression or anxiety or anger, um, just mood changes in general, I like to at least set the expectation that there definitely can be hormonal influences on your mood, but whether or not hormones themselves will help that is sometimes just you got to test it and see, Debatable, and then yeah. also not forget all the lifestyle measures that help our mood throughout our lives. So, exercise and getting your natural endorphins pumping, um, and um, talking to your family and friends, thinking about traditional, you know, therapy, um, seeing a counselor, and then mood medication. So, you know, there's really great medication options. I'm not saying it's the first line thing to do, but certainly if, you know, we're not getting enough improvement with exercise and family support and therapy, it's certainly a good option. Um, and, and, you know, again, if someone happens to try hormones for another indication and sees a change in mood, that's a great side effect of those hormones, but it's not typically entirely hormonal.
0: Um, As far as sleep, I love my sleep. This stuff terrifies me. Is the, is the problem with sleep disturbances, is it falling asleep or staying asleep or not feeling, you know, rested in the morning? Yes.
1: Could be all the above. So, um, and, and I'm not a sleep expert, but when it comes to, I'm not an expert. I don't have to say that. I should just be like, I'm not an expert in anything. <laughs> yes, you um, actually are. But, Nell, but, but uh, you never feel that way. You always feel like a child who's just like you're like you're like putting on your high heels and pretending every day to like go do the things you're supposed to do as an adult. Um, but sleep disturbance, I think, can be any of the above. And I hear from patients all the time that it's a problem falling asleep. It's a problem getting back to sleep it's waking up too early in the morning. Um, it it's, over, it's sleepiness during the day, despite uh, what they feel like is a decent night's sleep. So, so many sleep issues. I think um, more than half of hot flashes are shown to wake women up. So again, you can go back to saying, well, could this be hormonally driven. It could be hormonally driven because hot flashes are waking you up in the middle of the night, night sweats and hot flashes. Um, And then it could be also hormonally driven, but not quite so specific to hot flashes. Um, And so, you know, if it is that hot flashes are waking a woman up, then again, targeting the hot flashes, and then maybe you get double benefit for two different symptoms uh, is great. But if it's not related to hot flashes, typically going the hormonal route for sleep alone is not going to be a great option with the exception of progesterone. And that actually has a little bit, the hormone progesterone specifically uh, micronized progesterone. So a synthetic form of progesterone has a uh, enhanced, you know, sleep uh, side effect. Hmm. So that is something that sometimes I mentioned before progesterone is only needed if you have a uterus, but progesterone alone can sometimes be used for sleep issues. And then especially in women who are wanting to avoid estrogen, but feel okay about taking progesterone, they may see a little benefit on some other hormone, uh, menopausal symptoms as well.
0: Okay. Interesting. So,
1: so could you try hormones for sleep? You could, but typically it goes back to sleep hygiene. So yeah. The things that we and it's not gonna be a magic fix. A lot of people say they're already doing some of these things. But when you I love Dr. Gunner in the Menopause Manifesto said the bed should be for sleep and sex. And I definitely don't abide by that rule. I have my phone, I have a book, I have a glass of milk, I have like a crunchy snack that's like falling all over the sheets. It's (laughs) disgusting. Um, but I I think that I don't think I'm alone in at least some of those things. And uh, I think in the world of TVs and uh, phones and uh, like the alarm clocks now that look like they, you know, light up the whole room, I think we build ourselves up for uh, poor sleep. So I think even though it's frustrating for folks to think about making you know, time commitments and big changes to certain habits. Um, that's where I would typically start. Uh, and then, then, of course, if it's related to hot flashes, maybe thinking about, of course, treating those as well, if they're bothersome enough. Yeah. Um, and then exercise can be really helpful for sleep too, as long as it's done not too late in the day, because you have this increase in cortisol level that's very temporary. And then that decreases and typically The the long term effect in the day is that you're going to sleep better at night.
0: That's interesting. Yeah.
1: Um. I think when people hear like diet or exercise or hygiene this or therapy that, it's frustrating because it's not quick and it's not necessarily easy.
0: Yeah.
1: But it's um, it 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 can be very helpful.
0: Well, to quote, to do another quote from the um. Um, menopause manifesto book is, and this is something you had included in your presentation is the, as Dr. Gunder said, I'm here to scare you about osteoporosis. And that's something I'd love for you to do a, uh, co- to cover because that's so important and part of this whole process of aging and menopause. Yes. And
1: going back to your comment about her, that book earlier, is I do think it's a book that can be selected as to what is read. And this is one of those where, you know, I I see a lot of women in their 60s or 70s. And, and a lot of the topics in the book may not apply to them. Um, Maybe they're not bothered by hot flashes anymore. Maybe they forget what a period ever felt like. Um, And so, but but I think even this topic alone, osteoporosis that Dr. Gunnar covers in her book is really well Uh, thought out, and really, really evidence-based. So osteoporosis is defined as severe bone loss and definitely comes with an increased risk of fracture. Um, And what's really scary is a time in our lives when we are not thinking about menopause at all. We're not thinking about anything but our day-to-day lives and our social lives. So our 20s, that's when our peak bone mass occurs, right? And then it starts to kind of it tra- it stabilizes as best it can, in it's th- in our 30s and 40s. And then menopause hits, and we have a pretty rapid amount of of bone loss. Um, and in the menopausal years, after periods stop, uh, two thirds of women are going to have the significant bone loss, and about 50 percent of women will have osteopenia, and 15 percent will have osteoporosis risk factors. So it's, I think it's always important to think about what puts you at increased risk. So you first of all, I think your provider should talk to you about bone health at every, I talk to teenagers about it. I talk about it to women in their twenties and thirties, um, because that's when you can kind of be taking care of your bones that you do have. Um, so vitamin D is important, getting enough exercise, weight bearing exercise, especially, um, that can be walking. It can be arm weights. It can be yoga. And, um, and then watching your risk factors because it's not just menopause and it's not just being a female, but if you're, if you are prone to being underweight, um, if you're a smoker, if you have a strong family history of osteoporosis, there are other things as well, then you really should get screened earlier than just standard screening at starting at the age of 65. Um, And they're really good treatment options. So I thought it was, um, you know, I thought it was really helpful, some of the statistics that were listed in the book about risks of medications associated with osteoporosis. So vitamin D and exercise, all women should be doing. But if a woman has osteoporosis, the medications that are out there carry far lower risk than the risk of untreated osteoporosis. So, um... I think that these statistics are fascinating. So I'll go through them. I know it's hard to think about numbers when you're listening. I can't think about numbers very well when I'm listening to something. But if a woman who's 65 or over is living alone and breaks her hip, one year later, she has a 50% chance of being unable to live alone.
0: I mean, that's incredible. I'm sorry, go ahead. Incredible. No,
1: a 40% chance of being unable to walk alone, like without, (sighs) you know, walker. 30% 30% chance of not being able to get in and out of the bath and the odds that she will die within the year are 17%. And those are, those are numbers that you hear from like an oncologist with terminal cancer. Right. Yes, And and we get, we're scared of that. And I don't think there's very many women in their mid sixties who would decline, therapy for such a bad prognosis. And so um, osteoporosis has good treatment and it has treatment that comes with very little risk and that that they have entire clinics set up for the treatment of osteoporosis. So they have medications that can help like stabilize your bones, that can keep the bones from um, from you know continuing to weaken that can build up the bone. And I won't go into the detail of the different ones, but I think the I think the key is to know there are medications that are intended to help and and really carry very little in the way of risk. Um, and I I would say in thinking about risk, I, I would say flip back and forth between the pages I love in the book. The discussion of osteoporosis medications, and if you flip to the section on vitamins, I swear more, there's more harm from some of the vitamins out there that we are taking, like on a like we're you know downing every morning, hoping that it's going to make us live longer, but we're avoiding some of the things that can can really help and have good good data and benefit. So, I just I would I would say that for me personally, this this you know is a topic that I will take very seriously currently in my own mother, um, you know, who fortunately has strong bones, but I think that, you know, it's, it's our job, I think, as children of aging parents to, to help them when they, you know, get a diagnosis of whether it's cancer or osteoporosis, um, or anything else just to kind of weigh the options of treatment and, and to support, you know, support those older folks, in deciding to get treatment and then for ourselves, you know, to not be afraid of, of some of the things that are out there because we are living longer and that's a wonderful thing, but it comes with um, really big risks of fractures and falls and whatnot. If we're, if we're not, you know, taking advantage of modern medicine and what it can offer us.
0: Well, Nell, this is such good advice. And, you know, one thing that really stuck out to me, in this book, and that you have emphasized is, is the importance of exercise. And, you know, the the numbers that Dr. Gunter quoted was at least 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity exercise, like brisk walking, or 75 minutes of vigorous, like aerobic activity every week, and strength training two or more days a week. And, and I think strength training is something that some women uh, have been doing for their whole lives, and they love it. And uh, in my experience, the vast majority of women don't love strength training and weights and resistance. And if that is one thing I've taken out of all of my menopause uh, reading, would be the importance of strength training. And I'm really trying to incorporate that into my life. And. I wish I could get my mom to do it. <laughs> but um, I love the advice about thinking about our aging parents and aging patients for those of us that are our providers. But now thank you so much. This has been incredible. I appreciate your time and careful and thoughtful attention and detail and depth of answering these questions so very much. If you have do you have any final advice or anything? You're, you're,
1: you're too, so, you're too so dear Libby. No, I have no, nothing else to add. And I, um I, y'all, everyone who may hear this is very patient to listen to my rambling.
0: Not rambling at all. This is such a gift that you have provided for all of us. Thank you so much, Nell. You're incredible. Appreciate you so much. You're the best Libby. Bye. Okay. Bye what a comprehensive review of this wildly complicated topic that is so important to women of all ages so much to take in here i am going to list just four take-home points to just hammer these home number one consider hormone therapy or non-hormone options for symptoms of menopause based on your risk factors. Talk to your doctors about all these options. Don't be terrified of hormones. Know that most alternative medicines have not shown much efficacy. Number two, it sounds like vaginal estrogen may be my new best friend in the future. We need to start this therapy sooner because these symptoms are progressive so don't get behind the eight ball start vaginal estrogen early number three really consider exercise specifically weight-bearing exercise strength training as well as calcium and vitamin d for bone health start worrying about and doing something about your own bone health now And also worry about the bone health of other women in your lives. That includes your teenage daughters, as well as your aging parents. Know that there are a multitude of medicines available that can really help slow bone loss and even reverse the changes associated with osteoporosis and osteopenia, as Nell wonderfully outlined. Number four. Talk with your partner about desire and sex. If you really want it to be a priority, you've got to put some time and effort into it, just like about everything else in life. Tremendous thanks to Dr. Nell Johnson for her time and thoughtful attention and really incredible depth of answers here. She is a true gem in all the ways a person can be And thank you, as always, to Russ Kelly for all of the sound, editing, and music magic. Bye, everyone.